Children are dismissed. As the kids are making their way out, you can remain standing for our scripture reading today, uh, which comes out of Mark chapter 14. So we'll be in Mark 14, verses 10 to 25. You can follow along in your own copy of God's Word, or the words are on the screen for us today as well. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the chance to be in worship today. I thank you for uh, the blessing of being before your word and the way that you have given us a chance to know you better through your word. God, we thank you for, uh, just as we sang, the blood that washes away our sin. What an incredible gift that our sins have been paid for. God, we sang that your wrath has been satisfied that, that the, the punishment we deserved was not poured out on us, but was poured out on your Son. And because of that, God, we former enemies can now be seated with you at the table. God, we prepare our hearts even now to receive the elements at the table at the, at the end of our service in a moment. And I, I pray and thank you for inviting us to this, your table. God, may we follow you in obedience, and may we be attentive to the work of your Holy Spirit. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just about every major religion around the world has a number of um, practices and rituals that from the outside looking in seem pretty strange. Perhaps you've seen or, or know about how Hindus uh, will go and bathe in the Ganges River, at a certain time of the year. And there are, there's this place in, in India where millions of people are coming and pouring into this one river. They believe that this river is, is a type of a place where they can find cleansing and forgiveness of sins. And so 
Millions of people are coming to this river to wash in it. Perhaps you know about people who practice Islam and Muslims at a certain point in the year will practice a pilgrimage, a hajj, where they go to Mecca. And again, you can watch and see millions and millions of people coming to this one spot because of what they believe and how they practice it. As you know, on the outside looking in, that, those things seem a little bit strange, but Christianity might be right up there with it when it comes to something strange. The words we just read, Jesus tells his disciples something that if you're a Christian, you've been around the church, maybe it doesn't strike you as weird, but if you can hear it for the first time, it's weird. He says, take, this is my body, eat. And then he grabs a cup and said, this is my blood, drink it. As a Christian, you're like, of course, that's the Lord's Supper. Of course, this is communion. That's not weird, but... Perhaps you can see how in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries of Christianity, Christians were often accused of being cannibals. They said that there's this religion where they're eating somebody and drinking their blood. That is weird. As Christians, we know this is a strange thing to hear and yet really important and significant. Why would Jesus say something like this? Of course, Christianity, we, as Christians, we are not cannibals. This was a symbol, not literally Jesus' body and blood. He was handing them physical bread, in their case an unleavened bread, just as we will at the end of our service give you a piece of physical bread. And Jesus gave them literally a cup of physical wine, just as we have juice here prepared for you. These are symbols, not physically, literally somebody's body and blood. Why would Jesus talk like that, though? Why would he give this kind of description of a body that you're supposed to eat and blood you're supposed to shed. We'll continue unpacking this as we go, but it's worth pointing out at the outset, if nothing else, it's memorable, isn't it? It's memorable for somebody to say, this is my body broken for you. Take it, eat it. It's memorable for him to say, this is my blood poured out. Take it and drink it. It might be memorable because it's gross to you at first, but it's memorable nonetheless. Jesus was giving them a very simple and yet very profound illustration. It is a living, touchable, tasteable parable to understand what Jesus was offering to his disciples. And because of that, because it was something they could touch, something they could taste, it was something that was memorable. Jesus knew the human condition well, did he not? When he realized we are forgetful people, aren't we? Anybody else prone to leave your car keys somewhere and not remember where you put them? I, I now have one of those tile things I put in my wallet because I just know I'm going to set it down. I can't stand sitting on it. And so when I leave my wallet again this week somewhere, I can go to my phone and I can ding my wallet because I frequently misplace my wallet. That was after like the third one I've replaced. I just bought the little tile thing, you know. We forget. I said, I'm going to run by the store on the way home and in the 10 minutes it takes me, I forget that I'm supposed to do that. Or, you know, kids ask you like, hey, dad, when was, when was the first time I, I take, when, how old was I when I took my first step? And I'm like, you know, you're about this big. I, I don't know. You're, yeah. <clears throat> we are forgetful people. And if we're not careful, we forget even more important things than our kids' first steps. We forget the things of the good news and of the gospel. And so to help us, Jesus gave us something memorable something touchable, something tasteable. This is my body. This is my blood. 
On the outside looking in, it makes Christianity seem very odd, but on the inside, we recognize this is a reminder of the good news of the gospel. We're making our way through the last few chapters of Mark's gospel in this Lent season leading up to Easter Sunday. And as we continue this morning uh, to, to Jesus' uh, this moment in the Last Supper, it would have been the, the night before He's crucified. He's gathered with His disciples, and it's the very last meal that He would have taken. We saw last week that Jesus and His disciples had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, along with probably thousands of people, similar to what we would see if we could have video of people, you know, like just like the Hindus going to the Ganges or Muslims going to Mecca, people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It was this religious festival. And yet Jesus gives a a new meaning, a new purpose behind this simple meal. He changes it and gives new purpose. Jesus had, had brought his disciples together and invited them for this meal. And what I want you to see that first this morning is that they gathered for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is the same purpose that He invites us to take this meal together today as well. Jesus invites us to a meal of remembrance. He invites us to a meal of remembrance. The reason we take this meal is about our memory problem. It's about not being forgetful. Mark 10, 14 to tw- uh, 14, uh, verses 12 to no- 16, Jesus gives instructions uh, for the disciples to go and prepare this Passover meal. They were going to, the, they were supposed to, the two disciples were supposed to go into Jerusalem and find a man carrying a water jar. And apparently in that culture that would stand out a little bit frequently. It was the women or a servant who was carrying the water. And so Jesus said, no, look for a man. And when you find him, ask him to take you back to his mass, to this, to this certain house. And, and there, there's going to be a room prepared for you. And it's just like Jesus told them. The disciples go and they prepare this meal. The Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of this Passover meal. There's some significant differences, as we'll see, but the Passover meal was looking forward to the Lord's Supper, and so they share a lot in common. The symbolism and and significance is very similar. So if we're going to understand the Lord's Supper, we have to understand the Passover. Together, they share a lot and help us understand Jesus' point. The primary purpose of the Passover meal that Jesus and His disciples had was to call them to remember something in the past and looking ahead to something in the future. Jesus is that future fulfillment, but to understand it, it's helpful to look to the past. Traditionally, in the the Passover celebration, there would be one person who would preside over the meal. So we assume Jesus was probably the one presiding over it. And the Passover meal had had four steps. The first one was a, a simple blessing that they would give. But then there would be somebody that was uh, designated, frequently a child, that at the end of that blessing, that they would specifically ask a question of the person presiding, and they would say, you know, father or, or teacher or whoever they're speaking to, they would say, what is, to di- what is different about tonight's meal in comparison with all of our regular dinners? Why is tonight significant? They would ask that question of the person presiding over the meal, prompting the person to retell the story of the Passover. Perhaps that's a familiar story to you, or maybe it's not, but either way, it's worth remembering the story of the Passover. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, there was a man named Jacob, who was also named Israel, and he had 12 sons. One of those sons, his name was Joseph, and Joseph was sold into slavery 
and gone, taken out of the land of Israel and sent into eventually the land of Egypt. By God's great providence, Joseph rises to a very significant place, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. After an incredible famine takes over the land, Joseph, because of his great leadership, is prepared and Joseph's brothers come to Egypt looking for food. In God's grace, God provides for Joseph and his brothers and even his father Jacob, his father Israel. And they come and they settle in the land of Egypt, temporarily leaving behind their homeland and coming to Egypt so that they could have food. After a generation passes, another pharaoh comes to power and it's the book of Exodus tells us that pharaoh did not know Joseph. He did not love the nation, the group of the people of Israel. And so being afraid of their growing numbers, they enslaved the people of Israel. And the people of Israel who had come peacefully and come on their own accord are now enslaved in Egypt and are enslaved for 400 years. God then raises up a man, a very humble man and a, a very kind of un, 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 unimpressive man at the beginning, a man named Moses. Moses had fled Egypt and had been out in a different land for 40 years and God appears to this man Moses at the age of 80 and sends him back to Egypt to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Just as God had predicted, Pharaoh says no. So Moses and his brother Aaron continue to come before Pharaoh and remind him of the one true God. God sends 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt to convince Pharaoh to obey his command. After plagues of the Nile turning into blood, frogs, gnats, then flies, then sick livestock, then boils in their skin, then hail, then locusts, and then darkness, God promises one tenth and final plague that he knows will get Pharaoh's attention. God promised the tenth plague and he said, this night is coming when an angel of death will pass over the land of Egypt. And when he comes over the land, he will kill one child, one, one person, the oldest born male child in every family. Because of the sin and the wickedness of the land, God was sending an angel of judgment. But God also told his people, you can avoid that judgment in this way. Take a lamb from your flock, kill it and eat it. Enjoy a meal together, but take some of the blood from that lamb and put it over the doorpost of your house. And when the angel comes by, he will pass over your house and nobody in your family will die because a lamb has been killed. When the angel comes, he'll see the blood and he will pass over your house. Just as God said those things took place, the angel, the angel came and everybody in Egypt lost a family member, but the people of Israel within the nation of Egypt were spared. God predicted this would be the thing that changes Pharaoh's heart. And he had told the people of Israel, you better be ready because Pharaoh is going to change his mind like this. And you got to be ready to go. He even warned them, you should eat your meal with your cloak on your back, your belt around your waist and your staff in your hand, ready to leave. He told them, you're, you're going to be able to, making your bread, it's not even going to have time to rise. It's going to be unleavened bread. But when Pharaoh says, go, you go. And sure enough, that's what happened. Pharaoh, in his fear and anger, finally set the people of Israel free. And that's how Israel was miraculously delivered from the bondage and slavery of 400 years in Egypt. 
Every year, the people of Israel would remember that story, God's deliverance, God's salvation, as they observed that Passover meal once again. Not because an angel of death was continuing to pass over them year after year, but by observing that meal, they were remembering God's salvation, remembering God's deliverance. And so every year as they enjoy the Passover meal, killing a lamb and spreading blood over the doorpost, they were remembering what God had done for them. Perhaps Jesus himself was the one that was retelling that story with his, with his disciples, and perhaps as he had done years before with them. And the story was told that night, the disciples would not have been able to fully piece together how this was all coming together, how it all connects. But as Jesus tells them about the bread and the cup, he intends for them to see how these stories go together. Because like the Passover, the Lord's Supper is an invitation to remembrance. It's an invitation to remember what God has done for us. I didn't list these out in your bulletin, but I came up with at least five. There's plenty more. At least five things that the Passover and the Lord's Supper have in common. And one that we remember when we, when we take the Lord's Supper is that we remember that God is in control. Notice in both cases, God was fully in control. He told Moses exactly how things were going to happen, and they did. Jesus told his disciples exactly where to find the man with the water jar in the room and prepare it all the way. God was completely in control. Verse 16 says, The disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. Jesus even referred to himself in verse 21 as the Son of Man. That was his favorite description of himself, which seems like an, an innocent enough title. Just means he's human, right? But he's quoting Daniel chapter 7 when God gives a prophecy to Daniel when he sees a man who's like a son of man, meaning he's human, and yet he is ruling over every nation that's ever lived forever. He is eternal. He's a man, and yet he is eternal. He is God, and he is man. That's who Jesus is, and Jesus quotes, uses that title of himself as a reminder that God is in control. When you take the elements, you're reminded that God is fully in control. You also remember that God is our Savior when we take the Lord's Supper. Just as the people of Israel were saved out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover, the Lord's Supper reminds us of an even greater salvation. By God's grace, we are not enslaved physically in this country at this time. But spiritually, before God's salvation, all of us were in a much harder to break slavery than the people of Egypt, Israel, were in when they were in Egypt. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin and completely powerless to stop death. Sin and death are our slave masters apart from Christ, and we cannot find our own liberation on our own. We cannot make ourselves free from sin and the penalty and the end of our lives of death. But by God's grace, we can be set free. That can be removed. Our captors can be taken care of. Just as the Passover meal reminded God's people that they walked out of Egypt freely, the Lord's Supper reminds us that our sin has been broken, the power of sin has been broken, and death has been conquered. That's why when Paul reminds the first, uh, one of the early churches, the church in Corinth, about this supper, he, he warns them not to take it in an unworthy manner. He says, if you're continuing to live in a, a habitual lifestyle of sin 
and taking the Lord's Supper at the same time, you're, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. You miss the point. Taking the Lord's Supper is a reminder that sin doesn't have power over us anymore. Taking the Lord's Supper is an act of faith that says, I am not captive to the desires of my heart or the desires of Satan. I'm not enslaved to those things. I've been set free. Many times we think of freedom as uh, the capacity to do whatever I want. I, I can go do whatever I want. The, the way the Bible talks about freedom is you are no longer captive to sin. Apart from Christ, you are enslaved to do, following the course of this world and following the desires of your heart. And the Lord's Supper is a proclamation that we are free. We are free from sin. Which is why when we come to the table, we always take a moment to repent. To remind ourselves we aren't those people anymore. We are a freed people. And we can live by faith and live in obedience. We do not continue in the old way. The people of Israel, sure enough, when they were set free, they whined and they complained. They wanted to go back to slavery at one point. They didn't want to suffer or make things hard out in the desert as God was leading them. and said, let's go back to slavery. And when we come to the Lord's table with sin in our hearts, holding on to a lifestyle of not following Christ, what we're doing is we're saying, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to captivity. And God, the good news of this meal is you've been set free. You don't have to live in sin anymore. God is our Savior from sin, and He conquers death. Even death cannot separate us from God. God is our Savior. How did He do that? How did He accomplish that? A third way, the third thing they have in common, the Lord's Supper and the Passover, is that God provided our salvation through a substitute. He brought a substitute. In the Passover story, because death was certain, the question wasn't whether, whether something or someone's going to die. The question is, who's going to die? Either it was going to be somebody in the household or a lamb. The Passover was a remembrance that the lamb died in their place. It was a substitute. Something is on the chopping block. Is it us or is it the lamb? Because of sin for us, just like the people of Egypt that many hundreds of years ago, our, somebody's death is certain, either ours or Jesus. And Jesus said, I will die in your place. This body that is broken is a substitute. It's put in your place. How, how did that work? To believe in Jesus means to, to admit that we need a Savior. One, one of the most common mistaken beliefs of our day is that we are good people, right? We say, I, you know, I'm, I'm a decent person. I, I, I'm not as bad as that guy. I know some people who are worse off than me, so I'm good, and generally good people go to heaven, right? To take this meal, to take the Lord's Supper, is to admit I needed somebody to die for me because I deserve to die. That's a big step, and one that we won't ask you to take lightly. In fact, we always say at the meal, you, you do not have to come to take this meal. And if you have not pushed, put your faith in Jesus Christ, we recommend that you don't because it would be doing something, you, you're, you're acting something that you don't really believe. To take this meal is to say, I'm a sinner who deserved to die and I needed somebody to die for me. And this bread that represents Jesus' body and this cup that represents His blood is me saying, I'm a sinner, I deserve to die and Jesus died for me. That's what this is. It's a proclamation that I am not a good person. I do not deserve to go to heaven. 
I do not deserve to know God. But by God's grace, He's made it possible. It's an act of faith that God is in control, that God is our Savior, and He provided that salvation by sending a substitute to die in our place. One of the ways this meal would have been very strange to the first disciples as Jesus described it is that He called Himself the Son of Man, and yet He spoke of this Son of Man as being betrayed in verse 21. The Son of Man, we said, was the one who was eternal king over everything, and yet somehow He was going to let something happen that wasn't good. How could that be? How could somebody be in control and yet not stop the bad thing from happening? He absolutely could have stopped it, but he didn't. He willingly laid down his life. Jesus said in in John's gospel, nobody takes my life from me. I lay down my life on my own accord and I will take it up again. Jesus did this voluntarily. He was in control and yet laid down his life to pay for our sin. Taking the table, taking the elements is proclamation that you believe he died for you. The Lord's Supper is an amazing reminder, tangible reminder of that substitution. With Jesus' death, he made a promise to us, or more specifically, a covenant, just as the old one, the Passover did. The Lord's Supper reminded us that God formed a covenant. Verse 24, Jesus told him, this is the blood of the covenant. Strange language again. If you're a Christian, you read over these things and it just sounds like Christianese to you. But it's worth pausing. Why would he call it blood of a covenant? To the first people who heard this, they would have understood the Old Testament reference. God delivered his people out of Egypt through a Red Sea, through the desert, into, into a place called Mount Sinai first. And when they're at the mountain, God gives them a covenant, a commandment. Essentially, the essence of that covenant promise was this. I saved you. You didn't save yourself. God said, I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. You didn't do anything to earn it. This is not because you're good or better or holier or prettier or fancier or wealthier than anybody else. I just, I chose to save you, Israel. I brought you out. And now I'm inviting you to live as my people, following me and following my commands. God's people hear that and say, that's good news. Thank you. Yes, we will agree to this covenant. And the way that they marked this official covenant in Exodus 24 is that Moses brings oxen out and he slaughters the oxen, sacrifices the oxen, and then does something really weird. I'm telling you, this whole religion thing, it's weird, right? He kills the oxen, takes some of the blood, throws it up on the altar. Okay, that's weird enough, but not too weird. The next one's weird. He takes the other blood and he sprinkles that all over the people. Just throws the blood of the oxen over the people. Now that's weird. We're going to try that today. With No, we're not. Because we have a new covenant. It gets worse, I'll tell you in a minute. Ours gets better, I guess. He sprinkles blood on them. Why would he do that? It was a way to mark the seriousness of the commitment and the severity of the covenant. He's saying, this is life and death for us, people. He's saying, this oxen, you see how he just died. This blood's been applied to us. We're saying this is life and death. To follow, life, to follow God, to keep the covenant, to continue to walk with Him, that's life. But to leave God, to abandon God, is to have my blood scattered. It's to choose death. If I'm rejecting God, I'm, I'm choosing death. Similarly, Jesus says, I'm making a new covenant. It's a covenant in blood. His blood. 
And it's a life or death covenant. Eternity is in the balance on this promise. To follow Christ is to choose life. To reject Jesus is to say, I reject His death and I choose my own. The blood of the covenant is about the seriousness and the severity, the life and death of this promise. That was true of the Old Testament and is true of the New Covenant, now fulfilled in Christ. God's promise is this Passover, the Lord's Supper now. By God's control, He's our Savior, He's a substitute, He formed a covenant. And the fifth and finally, He formed a people. The Exodus generation, they became a, a, a unified, identified, identifiable people. The nation of Israel, when they made this covenant, they said, you are our God and we are your people. They were an entity, definable. This is the nation because they are the ones in relationship with God. And so it is with this table, the Lord's Supper. By taking this meal, we are saying, I'm in. I'm remembering that I am a part of the family of God. The people who take this meal are Christians, not people who are not Christians. And that's okay. I know it looks weird to the outside. It's a broken body and shed blood. That's weird. But we're saying, I'm in the family. My sins have been paid for. The wrath of God that was meant to be poured out on me has now been satisfied in Christ. I was an enemy. Now I'm seated at the table. I'm in. I'm in the family. It's a family meal. And we are identified as Christians because we come to the table. It forms a people. God is in control. God's our Savior. He's a substitute. Formed a covenant. Formed a people. That all sounds pretty good. And I wish Mark would have just told it to us that way. But he doesn't. If you notice a big part of the story I haven't touched yet? If I was Mark, or any of the other disciples writing down the gospel, this is a pretty big moment. The Lord's Supper instituting this. Pretty sacred, pretty significant, memorable, pretty holy. So if I was going to tell this story, I would keep it concise. I would keep it clear. I would make sure that I, I point out the important things that Jesus said. But anything that happened that night that, you know, was kind of weird or just not, you know, doesn't fit along with the Lord's Supper, I would leave it out. Not Mark. You notice what he includes right in the middle of this story? He tells us all about how Judas is going to betray him. And he doesn't just start, start, talk about it and then leave it. He keeps coming back to it. Do you notice how this works? I started reading in verse 10 and 11 where Judas makes this plan to betray the perfect Son of God. Then Jesus goes and gets things ready in the Passover meal, verses 12 to six, uh, 16. And then when Jesus sits down, Mark decides to include, I mean, what all would have been said that night? Mark could have picked anything to include. We know he's only gonna, it doesn't all fit. You know, everybody talks for a long time. But Mark includes Jesus calling out, saying, somebody's going to betray me. And then they go back to the Lord's Supper and, just, and he, he takes, describes how this is the body and the blood. So we get betrayal, Passover, betrayal, Lord's Supper. Why does Mark do that? If you're reading through Mark's gospel, you'll notice that Mark is an incredible author. And he has this unique method about him that's got a fancy name that I never remember. And we just call them Mark Sandwiches. Mark Sandwiches. Mark takes two different topics and he, decide, he divides one on either side and puts another topic in the middle and makes a sandwich. 
One of the most famous and easy to kind of get our mind around. It seems weird when you read it. Mark 11, Jesus curses a fig tree. Then he goes into the temple and cleanses everybody, kicks everybody out. He comes back out and they notice the fig tree has been withered. So it's a temple sandwich. You got fig trees at the bread and the temple's in the middle. Why, Mark, don't you just finish telling the fig tree story and then tell me the temple story? Mark does it because he wants you to understand both of them to go together. That just like the fig tree, there's leaves, but there's no fruit. So also in the temple, there's religious activity, but no spiritual fruit. It's a Mark sandwich that he puts together so you can understand it. So he does with the Passover. Betrayal, Passover, betrayal, Lord's Supper. Maybe it's a Big Mac, not just, you know, it's a bunch. All together. Why does he do it together? Because he wants to tell you who this dinner's for. This Lord's Supper, this broken body, this shed blood is not for perfect disciples because there aren't any. He wants you to know that this meal, the people who are invited to this table, are undeserving people. Jesus invites undeserving people. He invites the undeserving to the meal. By sandwiching together this story, that surely would have felt like the most embarrassing part of Jesus' whole story. Yes, it's, it's one thing that he goes to the cross, but it's another thing that he went and brought along somebody with him for years that he knew was going to betray him. Only one's going to betray him that night, but all 12 will abandon him by morning. Not one of his disciples is standing with him, helping him out the next day when he's on trial. They all reject him. Jesus knew it was coming, and he died for them anyway. How hard would that have been? If you had to make a sacrifice for somebody, even a lesser sacrifice than your life, but that right before you did it, you knew everybody was going to turn their back on you, how hard would it be to make that sacrifice? And yet Jesus tells us, I'm going to the cross, even though y'all don't deserve it. In fact, he went because we don't deserve it. Verse 19, Jesus, as Jesus is telling them about this, the disciples began to be sorrowful and they say to him one after another, is it I? Is it me, Jesus? Did I, am I the one that's going to betray you? I appreciate their humility. They had a sense of the condition of their own heart. They saw this meal, they saw this sacrifice and they said, I, I don't deserve this. And, and I know my heart enough to know I I could reject Jesus. How prone we are to sin. How likely we are to fall. And how much more would we be able to avoid those falls if we had the same humility? Jesus invites us to partake of this meal and not to do it in an unworthy manner, but to repent, to recognize that we too could reject Jesus. It is all by grace. The gift Jesus has given us is completely unmerited. And it always has been. That's something the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper share in common, is it's a gift of grace. Many times it's thought that all the Old Testament people, they were saved because they kept the law. The New Testament people, they're saved by Jesus. But the Passover tells us, the story tells us, no, it's always been by grace. God saved a people who didn't deserve it. He spared their lives and he invites, us to, invites them to walk in relationship with him. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. The only difference is the Old Testament pointed forward to what Christ was going to accomplish, 
we now look back and say what Christ did accomplished. It's always been by grace. But here's the big difference between the old and the new, between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. I told you that when they sacrificed the oxen, they sprinkled the blood on the people. And that was weird. But Jesus makes it weirder. But He makes it more meaningful. Jesus became the meal. He Himself becomes the Passover lamb so that the undeserving could have fellowship with Him. Jesus became the meal so the undeserving could have fellowship with Him. Jesus didn't just sprinkle the blood on top of the people. He asked us to put the blood in our mouth. And it comes in us. Why would He do that? That's, that sounds so strange to take the blood, not just sprinkled over top of you, but to actually drink it. He's saying that this is going deep into your soul. Again, of course, it's symbolic. You drink, they drank wine, we're drinking juice. But He's saying... I want you to know I've come not just to cleanse you on the outside, but to change you from the inside. I've come to change not just your appearance. I've come to change your heart. This is going deep inside of you so that you can say genuinely, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We get changed from the inside out so that we can live in fellowship with Jesus. We are united to him. We have relationship with Him. We are in fellowship with Him. Jesus finished by saying, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus knew He was going to the cross, but He knew the cross wasn't the end of the story. He knew that He would be resurrected and that He would be enter back into the Father's kingdom, into the relationship with His heavenly Father, and that He would have joy for eternal life. And that same promise is true for us. When we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves of the death, and re- death of Jesus' cross and His burial, but also of His resurrection. That we too are choosing life when we believe in Jesus. That He has come inside of us, changed us from the inside out, so that we can walk and live with Him forever.